Welcome to the Page of the Water Dog Saves the Planet Peace Podcast. This is a continuation of W.H. Hudson's Birds and Man. Doubtless there are some and perhaps a good many ornithologists among us who have been abroad to observe the bird life of distant countries and who, when at home, find that the sound impressions they have received are not persistent or if not wholly lost, that they grow faint and indistinct and become increasingly difficult to recall. They can no longer listen to those oversea notes and songs as they can mentally to the cuckoo's call in spring, the wood owl's hoot, to the song of the skylark and of the tree pipit, the reeling of the nightjar and the startling scream of the woodland jay, the deep human-like tones of the raven, the inflected wild cry of the curlew, and the beautiful wild whistle of the widgeon, heard in the silence of the night on some lonely mare. The reason is that these, and numberless more, are the sounds of the bird life of their own home and country, the living voices to which they listened when they were young and the senses keener than now, and their enthusiasm greater, They were in fact heard with an emotion which the foreign species never inspired in them, and thus heard, the images of the sounds were made imperishable. In my case, the foreign were the home birds, and on that account alone more to me than all others, yet I escaped that prejudice which the British naturalist is never wholly without, the notion that the home bird is intrinsically better worth listening to than the bird abroad. Finally, on coming to this country, I could not listen to the birds coldly, as an English naturalist would to those of, let's say, Queensland or Burma or Canada or Patagonia, but with an intense interest, for these were the birds which my forebears had known and listened to all their lives long, and my imagination was fired by all that had been said of their charm, not indeed by frigid ornithologists, but by a long succession of great poets, from Chaucer down to those of our own time. Hearing them thus emotionally, their notes became permanently impressed on my mind, and I found myself the happy possessor of a large number of sound images representing the bird language of two widely separated regions. To return to the main point, the durability of the impression both of sight and sound. In order to get a more satisfactory idea of the number and comparative strength or vividness of the images of 26 years ago remaining to me after so long a time than I could by merely thinking about the subject, I drew up a list of the species of birds observed by me in the two adjoining districts of La Plata and Patagonia. Against the name of each species, the surviving sight and sound impressions were set down. But on going over this first list and analysis, fresh details came to mind, and some images which had become dimmed all at once grew bright again, and to bring these in, the work had to be redone. Then it was put away and the subject left for a few days to the subliminal consciousness, after which I took it up once more and rewrote it all, list and analysis, and I think it now gives a fairly accurate account 
of the state of these old impressions as they exist in memory. This has not been done solely for my own gratification. I confess to a very strong feeling of curiosity as to the mental experience on this point of other field naturalists, and on these, or some of them, may have the same wish to look into their neighbors' minds that I have. It may be that the example given here will be followed. My list comprises 226 species, a large number to remember when we consider that it exceeds about 16 or 18 the number of British species, that is to say, those which may truly be described as belonging to those islands, without including the waifs and strays and rare visitants, which by a fiction are described as British birds. Of the 226, the sight impressions of 10 have become indistinct, and one has been completely forgotten. The sight of a specimen might perhaps revive an image of this lost one as it was seen, a living wild bird, but I do not know. This leaves 215, every one of which I can mentally see as distinctly as I see in my mind the common species I am accustomed to look at every day in England, thrush, starling, robin, etc., a different story has to be told with regard to the language. To begin with, there are no fewer than 34 species of which no sound impressions were received. These include the habitually silent kinds, the stork, which rattles its beak but makes no vocal sound, the painted snipe, the wood ibis, and a few more species which were rarely seen and emitted no sound, condor, muscovy duck, harpy eagle, and others, species which were known only as winter visitants or seen on migration, and which at such seasons were invariably silent. Thus those which were heard, number 192. Of these, the language of seven species has been completely forgotten, and of 31, the sound impressions have now become indistinct in varying degrees. Deducting those whose notes have become silent, and are not clearly heard in the mind, there remain 154 species which are distinctly remembered. That is to say, when I think of them and their language, the cries, calls, songs, and other sounds are reproduced in the mind. Studying the list in which the species are ranged in order according to their affinities, it is easy to see why the language of some, although not many, has been lost or has become more or less indistinct. In some cases, it is because there was nothing distinctive or in any way attractive in the notes. In other cases, because the images have been covered and obliterated by others, the stronger images of closely allied species. In the two American families of tyrant birds and wood hewers, neither of which are songsters, there is in some of the closely related species a remarkable family resemblance in their voices. Listening to their various cries and calls, the trained ear of the ornithologist can easily distinguish them and identify the species, but after years, the image of the more powerful or the better voices of, say, two species to illustrate this point, unless it be that of the meadow and rock pipit. Strongly as the mind is impressed by the measured tinkling notes of these two songs, 
Amid as the birds descend to earth, it is not probable that any person who had not heard them for a number of years would be able to distinguish or keep them separate in his mind, to hear them in their images as two distinct songs. In the case of the good singers in that distant region, I find the voices continue remarkably distinct, and as an example will give you the two melodious families of the finches and the trupials, Aesteridae, the last an American family related to the finches, but starling-like in appearance, many of them brilliantly colored. Of the first, I am acquainted with 12, and of the second, with 14 species. Here then are 26 highly vocal species of which the songs, calls, chirps, and various other notes are distinctly remembered in 23. Of the other three, one was silent, a small, rare, migratory finch resembling the bearded tit in its reed-loving habits, its long tail and slender shape, and partly too in its coloring. I listened in vain for this bird's singing notes. Of the remaining two, one is a finch, the other a trupial, the first a pretty bird in appearance, a small hawfinch with its whole plumage a lovely glaucous blue, a poor singer with a low rambling song, the second a bird of the size of a starling, colored like a golden oriole, but more brilliant, and this one has a short, impetuous song composed of mixed guttural and clear notes. Why is this rather peculiar song of a species which on account of its coloring and pleasing social habits strongly impresses the mind less distinct in memory than the songs of other trupials? I believe it is because it is a rare thing to hear a single song. They perch in a tree in company like birds of paradise and no sooner does one open its beak than all burst out together and their singing strikes on the sense in a rising and falling tempest of confused sound. But it may be added that though these two songs are marked indistinct in the list, they are not very indistinct, and become less so when I listen mentally with closed eyes. In conclusion, it is worthy of remark that the good voices, as to quality, and the powerful ones, are not more enduring in their images than those which were listed to appreciatively for other reasons. Voices which have the quality of ventriloquism, or are in any way mysterious, or are suggested of human tones, are extremely persistent, and such voices are found in owls, pigeons, snipe, rails, grebes, nightjars, tinamus, Reyes and in some passerine birds. Again, the swallows are not remarkable as singers compared with thrushes, finches, and other melodists, but on account of their intrinsic charm and beauty, their interesting habits, and the sentiment they inspire, we listen to them emotionally, and I accordingly find that the language of the five species of swallows I was formerly accustomed to see and here continues as distinct in my mind as that of the chimney swallow, which I listen to every summer in England. I had meant in this chapter to give three or four or half a dozen instances of birds seen at their best instead of the one I have given, that of the long-tailed tit, 
and as many more images in which a rare, unforgettable effect was produced by melody. For as with sights, so it is with sounds. For these two, there are special moments, which have special grace. But this chapter is already longer than it was ever meant to be, and something on another subject yet remains to be said. The question is sometimes asked, what is the charm which you find or you say you find in nature? Is it real? Or do these words so often repeated have a merely conventional meaning, like so many other words and phrases which men use with regard to other things? Birds, for instance, apart from the interest which the ornithologist must take in the subject, what substantial happiness can be got out of these shy creatures, mostly small and not too well seen, that fly from us when approached, and utter sounds at which at their best are so poor, so thin, so trivial, compared with our soul-stirring human music? That, briefly, is the indoor view of the subject, the view of those who, to begin with, were perhaps town-born and town-bred, who have existed amid conditions occupied with work and pleasures, the reflex effect of which, taken altogether and in the long run, is to dim and even deaden some of the brain's many faculties, and chiefly this best faculty of preserving impressions of nature for long years or to the end of life in all their original freshness. Some five or six years ago I heard a speech about birds delivered by Sir Edward Gray, in which he said that the love and appreciation and study of birds was something fresher and brighter than the second-hand interests and conventional amusements in which so many in this day tried to live, that the pleasure of seeing and listening to them was purer and more long-lasting than any pleasures of excitement, and in the long run, happier than personal success. That was a saying to stick in the mind, and it is probable that some who listened failed to understand. Let us imagine that in addition to this miraculous faculty of the brain of storing innumerable brilliant images of things seen and heard to be reproduced at call to the inner sense, there existed in a few gifted persons a correlated faculty by means of which these treasured images could be thrown at will into the mind of another. Let us further imagine that someone in the audience who had wondered at that saying, finding it both dark and hard, had asked me to explain it, and that in response I had shown him, as by a swift succession of lightning flashes, a score or a hundred images of birds at their best. The unimaginable loveliness, the sunlit color, the grace of form and of motion, and the melody. How great the effect of even that brief glance into a new unknown world would have been. And if I had then said, all that you have seen, the pictures in one small room in a house of many rooms, is not after all the main thing that it would be idle to speak of, since you cannot know what you do not feel, Though it should be told you many times, this only can be told. The enduring images are but an incidental result of a feeling which existed already. They were never looked for, 
and are a free gift from nature to her worshiper. If I had said this to him, the words of the speech, which had seemed almost sheer insanity a little while before, would have acquired a meaning and an appearance of truth. It has curiously happened that while writing these concluding sentences, some old, long-forgotten lines, which I read in my youth, came suddenly into my mind, as if some person sitting invisible at my side and thinking them apposite to the subject had whispered them into my ear. They are lines addressed to the Merrimack River by an American poet, whether a major or minor I do not know, having forgotten his name. In one stanza he mentions the fact that young Brizot looked upon his stream in its bright flow and bore its image o'er the deep to soothe a martyr's sadness and fresco in his troubled sleep his prisoned walls with gladness. Brissot is not generally looked upon as a martyr on this side of the Atlantic, nor was he allowed to enjoy his troubled sleep too long after his fellow citizens, especially the great and sea-green incorruptible, had begun in their fraternal fashion to thirst for his blood. But we can easily believe that during those dark days in the Bastille, the image and vision of the beautiful river thousands of miles away was more to him than all his varied stores of knowledge, all his schemes for the benefit of suffering humanity, and perhaps even a better consolation than his philosophy. It is indeed this gladness of old sunshine stored within us. If we have had the habit of seeing beauty everywhere and of viewing all beautiful things with appreciation, this incalculable wealth of images of vanished scenes which is one of our best and dearest possessions, and a joy forever. What asketh man to have? cried Chaucer, and goes on to say in bitterest words that now with his love he must soon lie in the cold grave, alone, withouten any company. What he asketh to have, I suppose, is a blue diamond, some unattainable good, and in the meantime, just to go on with certain pleasant things which perish in the using. These same pleasant things are not to be despised, but they leave nothing for the mind in hungry days to feed upon, and can be of no comfort to one who is shut up within himself by age and bodily infirmities and the decay of the senses. On the contrary, the recollection of them at such times, as has been said, can but serve to make a present misery more poignantly felt. It was the nobly expressed consolation of an American poet, now dead, when standing in the summer sunshine amid a fine prospect of wood and hills, to think, when he remembered the darkness of decay in the grave, that he had beheld in nature, though but for a moment, the brightness of the skirts of God. Thank you for joining me for the Pedro the Water Dog Peace Podcast. Until next time, sit with yourself in silence every day. 
that's self with a capital S. We are all scholars of peace. Peace and love to you all. If you would like to read the full version of W.H. Hudson's Birds and Man, you can go to gutenberg.org. Podcast music is Dalai Lama Riding a Bike by Javier Peque Rodriguez. A link to his music on Spotify and Bandcamp are in the show notes. Support messages of peace in the planet by joining my Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee per month at patreon.com. Just search Avis Kalbsbeck or Pedro the Water Dog to find me. Pedro the Water Dog Saves the Planet books 1 through 5 are available at all your favorite online bookstores or at avaskalfspec.com. Book 1, One More Year, is available as an audiobook on all the audiobook sites, with the other books coming soon to audio. If you enjoyed this episode, or are at least curious about the future ones, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you again. Listen for the peace.